0: I'm excited to welcome a new sponsor in 2019 to the podcast, pageantswag.com. You see, I've been around the pageant world for some time now, and I have had numerous title holders and guests tell me that there were zero sites for casual fashion dedicated to you, the pageant lovers. So Pageant Swag decided to solve this problem. They've created this great e-commerce store full of everything from fun graphic t-shirts and crop tops to sweatshirts and hoodies. And they've even got a really cool lineup of both yoga and capri leggings. And it's all focused on you, the pageant lover. Check it out today and use the promo code Crown for 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's pageantswag.com. One more time, pageantswag.com.
1: Hi, I'm Kim Kelp, co-founder of The Superfan Company, and you're listening to Life After the Crown with Tim Tialdo.
0: Hey, everybody, my name is Tim Tialdo, and welcome to season two of the Life After the Crown podcast. Now, if you haven't had a chance to listen to any of the previous episodes, I do encourage you to go back and listen because there are many valuable interviews that you will definitely gain some wisdom from. Now, for those of you who are just tuning in for the first time, welcome and thanks for checking us out. Each episode of Life After the Crown, I interview former pageant contestants, title holders, and women of influence who share advice and stories on how to help you succeed in the world of pageants, but more importantly... How you can flourish in the professional world once your pageant journey comes to an end. As always, I appreciate you taking the time to download this podcast. I do value your time, and I'm glad you're here listening. So let's get started. My guest today is the co founder of The Superfan Company, a superfan focused company that creates engaging fan packages for entertainers and brands and celebrities. And since starting the company in 2011, she has worked with A-list clients like Katy Perry, the New York Mets, Kiss, Mumford & Sons, Kellogg's, Miller Coors, and the Beach Boys. This year, she was one of the members of the selection committee at Miss USA in Reno, Tahoe. She has been named to Forbes 30 under 30, advertising ages 40 under 40, and Inc's 35 under 35 list while the company was hailed as a top 30 startup to watch by entrepreneur. She was most recently seen on ABC's hit primetime show Shark Tank, securing offers from four out of five sharks, and she's contributed articles to numerous media outlets including Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, and Forbes Woman. She enjoys good music, witty banter, and commenting on life and entrepreneurship on her social channels. If you don't happen to interrupt her during one of her beloved Florida Gator games, she is always up for conversation, laughs, or figuring out a master plan on how she can meet and hug one of her idols actor Harrison Ford. I love it. Kim Kaup, you are certainly making waves out there. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be
0: on. Yeah, well, that is an incredible bio that I just read. And uh, wow, you are a female entrepreneur making big things happen out there. So um, I guess first, before we get into that, everybody, um, you know, listening probably knows you from Miss USA this year as a selection committee member. How did you get hooked up with that uh, gig?
1: Yeah, it was a wonderful opportunity and super fun. Um, I know some of the people over in IMG uh, who are the owners of the Miss Universe and Miss USA pageants and um, I guess my name was brought up in a brainstorm for the selection committee and I was lucky enough to have the honor to join this year's competition in Reno. Well,
0: hey, I I was listening to some different interviews of you this morning um, and just kind of doing some research. Uh, I heard you call yourself an accidental entrepreneur um, in an interview you gave. (laughs) Kind of tell me what that means to you. What's an accidental entrepreneur?
1: Yeah. Well, I feel that sometimes when you hear about entrepreneurship, it's people who have said, oh, I always knew I wanted to run my own business, and I just had that entrepreneurial bug from a young age, and I had my own lemonade stand, or I had a lawn mowing conglomerate in my neighborhood or, you know, I sold candy on the back of the bus out of my backpack. And um, I like to remind people that, that while that might be true for some people, it's not necessarily the case. I never had the entrepreneurial bug. I was the kid buying the candy from the kid with the entrepreneurial <laughs> bug at the, at the back of the bus. So really, you know, when I graduated from college, went into corporate Again, no entrepreneurial bug in sight and then, but yet here I am. Uh, so I was in the corporate world for about two and a half years before I started my company with my co-founder and that was eight and a half years ago. So I just like to remind people that, you know, it could fall into your lap. Uh, It could be something that you never thought that you would end up doing, but the right circumstances at the right time, with the right idea, with the right team and people around you, you end up doing something that you never thought you would do. And for me, that was entrepreneurship. But I just think that it's important to know that you can definitely be born with it, but you can definitely grow into it as well.
0: Well, and I think anybody listening when they hear that, you know, you're in the 30 under 30, 40 under 40, entrepreneur, Forbes, the Wall Street Journal, they're hearing all these things saying... She had to probably have a master plan coming out of college or whatever, but uh, you were mentioning that you were in the corporate world for a few years before you started. Um, so maybe let's get into the details of the journey a little bit. Talk about those first jobs that you had in the corporate world, what you were doing, and then how that eventually evolved into what you're doing today.
1: Yeah, so I graduated in 2008 from the University of Florida. Go Gators! Go Gators, <laughs> and yeah, I absolutely. always wanted to work in publishing. So that is something I knew from a really young age. I loved magazines. I loved reading magazines growing up. I had subscriptions to all of the 17 and the Teen Vogue. And I just really loved publications. All my internships throughout college were at publications. So I knew once I graduated, I really wanted to work in publishing. And out of anywhere in the United States, the publishing capital of the world is New York City. That's where, at the time, Time Inc. and Condé Nast and Meredith, three of the biggest magazine uh, conglomerates, were headquartered. So. I ended up getting a job at Condé Nast, which was really exciting out of college. And so I moved to New York City and for two and a half years, I worked at Condé Nast under their Brides magazine title. I was doing events and marketing for them and just having a, a wonderful time and experience and learning so, so much. And so after doing that for two and a half years, an opportunity to work at a small activation agency sort of fell into my lap and an activation agency are the agencies who are in charge of big events and big experiential things. So if you see, you know, the Super Bowl after parties or the Super Bowl pre-party brought to you by Pepsi, you know, those sorts of things are what activation agencies do And so that was right up my alley since I had been working in events and marketing. And so I joined this activation agency, but quickly realized uh, that I hadn't quite done all the homework that I probably should have. And realized very quickly after joining that it wasn't a perfect fit. I just wasn't super excited about it. And it was only my second week on the job. And I just was so unhappy with the decision I had made. And at the time, I thought, okay. You know, you've realized you've made this mistake, Kim. Can you, you know, option one, go back to your old boss at Condé Nast who hasn't filled your job yet and cry and grovel and (laughs) beg for your job back, which, you know, sounded kind of humiliating and not something that I was really excited about doing. Uh, Or you're going to have to figure something else out. And at the time, it happened that the woman sitting next to me at the ad agency, I told her... Very quickly how I realized I had made this mistake and she said well before you call your old boss back uh, I have an idea that I want to run by you and I think we could start this company together and I really at the time thought okay option one is groveling which is not so great (laughs) and option two is starting this crazy idea which at the time you know in most cases will statistically fail because most startups fail so I thought well this will fail, but in three months, you know, when it fails, at least I will have a really funny and entertaining story so that when I go back to my boss at Condé Nast or or go back to people at Condé Nast, I will say, well, you know, I left and for three months I was running a now defunct company, but (laughs) I really want to come back now. And so that was sort of my, my plan, which you know, sounds really quite crazy now when I when I think back and, and look at it. But at the time, I was super fortunate. I was 25 years old. I had no college debt because I had had a scholarship for school. So I didn't have college debt following me around. I didn't have a husband. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a car payment. Um, I didn't have credit card debt. So really, I looked at it as if, there's ever a time in life to try something and take a risk now is the time because i think when when you get down the road in life it is really hard to jump into entrepreneurship because you think you know i always tell people that you can have all the hopes and dreams in the world but the hopes and dreams aren't going to pay your mortgage and the hopes and dreams aren't going to feed your kids <laughs> so you know if you have real legal or parental responsibilities, it can be tough to go into entrepreneurship because for me, I knew that taking the risk really only affected me. It didn't affect um, other people as much. Of course, it affected my friends and family because you know they're close to me, but you know, financially or, or from a dependency standpoint, it didn't affect anybody but myself.
0: Well, when your now business partner called you with this idea, I guess what was it about the idea that you felt like this is actually probably a good idea? I mean, you know, sometimes it's uh, this is a market in a niche that's not being covered and we could certainly take off with it or maybe there were some numbers to prove something. I'd be interested to know what you thought of the idea when she called you initially and why you thought it might be successful.
1: I thought the idea was definitely interesting and something that was unique. Sort of the initial idea was how to create... A merchandise experience around music. So I sort of tell people, you know, again, this is back in the days, 2011. You know, there was no such thing as Spotify yet. There was, you know, no such thing as Instagram or Snapchat. You got to kind of rewind your mind. This is back in the days where people were buying things off iTunes. Uh, You're buying songs for 1.99 for your iPod. (laughs) And so back then. Uh, really looking at it as people are still buying a lot of CDs and physical uh, music at the time. And so saying if, you know, you loved an artist, you know, let's say you really, really loved Paul McCartney, and he was coming out with a new album, you might go into the stores and say, not only am I going to buy the album from Walmart for, let's call it 10.99 or 11.99, I also noticed that he's on the cover of People magazine this month, uh, promoting the album. So I'm also going to pick up an issue of people magazine so that I can read, you know, interviews with him and, and more about the new album. And that costs 3.99. And then I see that he also has a t-shirt, um, or stickers that are promoting the album. And I'm also going to buy some of those and, you know, the stickers cost 2.99. So when you add up everything in your cart, we were seeing that these super fans were purchasing a lot of stuff. And so the the initial sort of thought process is, is if we took a People magazine and we took an album and we took a piece of merch and all of those things had a baby, uh, what would pop <laughs> out would be our idea, which was a 64-page magazine filled with interviews with an artist and interviews with their Team, whether it's a wardrobe stylist or a makeup stylist or a co-writer or a producer or a tour manager, along with exclusive photos, along with the new music and some sort of physical merchandise, whether that's stickers or, you know patches or postcards or, again, just limited edition things that you could only get as part of this super fan package. So it was really, really focused on those fans that couldn't get enough because, again, an average fan is going to say, I would love to hear a new Paul McCartney song, but I don't think I need to read 64 pages of interviews with him dissecting a track by track. But if you're a really big fan, the thought of getting 64 pages of content all about him is super exciting and something that you're going to get really jazzed about and want to go out and buy. So that was the initial idea. And so I thought, yeah, there's definitely a market for these super fans, but I always say we did a ton of planning for what to do when the company failed. You know, we were very much like, okay, this Mm -hmm. is going to fail. And when it fails, You know, here are the things that I'm going to do. I, you know, I have my updated resume ready. I'm going to call my old boss at Conde Nast. I'm going to post on LinkedIn. You know, here's all the things I'm going to do when the business fails because, you know, statistically it will fail. And so I I joke that we had all these plans if it failed but we had no plans if it succeeded. And so what happened once it actually started to do well is um, my co-founder, Brittany and I were almost a little bit like, whoa, what do we do now? It's <laughs> it's actually working like Frankenstein. It's alive. What do what we do with this thing? And so um, the beginning was, was quite funny because we didn't, you know, have nowadays I look back and I think, oh my gosh, we were so naive. But, you know, we didn't have a really detailed business plan that they teach you, you know, when you go get your MBA or just getting your undergraduate degree. You know, people come with, you know, 56 page PowerPoint business plans about scaling and um, pricing and all that sort of stuff. And, and Brittany and I had no business plan. (laughs) You know, we were just like, yeah, this idea, we feel like it could work. Let's give it a go. We know that it will probably fail, but maybe it won't. And lucky for us here, you know, eight and a half years later, uh, it it hasn't failed. (laughs) So it's, uh, it's pretty awesome.
0: Well, you mentioned in you know getting into entrepreneurship <laughs> earlier that you know you do it earlier in your career because when you have a family, you know taking risks is a lot harder. And listening to you kind of uh, shell out the details of what you had in mind in terms of the Superfan company, super interesting. Um, I guess my question is, when you were detailing all that out, and you said there is a market for this, did you have any proof? at that time, I guess, you know, as an entrepreneur that there was a market for it? Was Were people actually buying things that were relating to what you were going to do? Or was this like a, we're going to throw it out there and see what happens?
1: No, people were definitely, you know, purchasing things that were falling into the super fan category. And what we were really seeing at the time is, you know, again, getting in your time machine and going back to 2011. (laughs) What we were seeing at the time was Facebook was really, and Twitter in 2011 was just kind of becoming something that people were using. But what we were noticing back in 2011 with Facebook is, especially with artists and celebrities, is that they were starting to what I refer to as feed the bears. And what I mean by that is, is it used to be that, whether it was a big celebrity like Madonna or Britney Spears, you know they would update their Facebook page, you know, once a month if they had some new music coming out, or once a month if they had a interview with Rolling Stone. And what we were seeing is over time, you know, it it started as once a month, but then it turned into once a week, then it turned into you know once a day, then it turned into once in the morning and once in the afternoon. And what perception I was really looking at, I was like, wow, you know, the more you keep feeding the bears, the more you keep giving fans a reason to come back. And now it's not just that I want to see Britney Spears new music or her new photo shoot, you know, what is she eating for breakfast and what's her workout routine and how does she do her hair? And, you know, these celebrities were giving, And not just celebrities, sports teams, you know, social media really changed the game of how we interact with the things that we love. You know, I always tell people growing up, I don't think there was ever a time where whether it was paparazzi photos or just the interest in celebrity lives has ever been the way it is now. You know, my mom used to grow up and listening to Elvis Presley. You know, no one was asking Elvis at the time what his workout routine was or did he take a picture of the toast that he ate for (laughs) breakfast, you know, which is now in our social media dominated world, what I was seeing was, wow, people are starting to take pictures of their toast for breakfast. (laughs) You know, as, as we become more and more, peeping toms, if you will, into into these lives of other people that the interest is going to extend beyond anything we could imagine. So again, it used to be fine that people would say, well, there's a two or three page main article in Vogue this month about Madonna and her new album, you know, that's enough. And again, going back to that Facebook once a month update, I really saw that, you know, what if we put 64 pages of Madonna instead of just three? And, you know, again, just like they're updating once a week and once a day and once in the morning, once in the afternoon. And just the thought process was, you know, you're going to keep feeding those bears and the bears are just going to want more and more and more And so this idea really stemmed from how do we continue to give people more in one place? And so I think that that was just, again, not only was it a a great idea, but I think it was good timing. You know, social media was just coming out. It was becoming something that people were really checking in a more diligent way. And so I think it was just um, a recipe of, of lots of different
0: factors coming together. So in, in feeding the bear, we'll call it, I like that an analogy, did you basically source third party content at this point to kind of put together in a package or were you directly approaching the celebrities themselves and saying, hey, we've got this idea. We think we can get uh-huh. to your super fans and make you make everybody more money. Uh, I'd be interested to know how you kind of yeah. presented that.
1: Yeah, it was a lot. was really working hand in hand with the artist and the celebrity and again, Going back to that Facebook example, you know, I think celebrities, whether they were sports figures or music artists or TV stars, were really noticing that, wow, social media is something I control. You know, when you do an interview with Vogue or People magazine or, you know, even a podcast, for example, they can edit you, right? You know, they can edit out things you say. They can take things out of context, whatever. And what the celebrities uh, were realizing at the time in talent was, wow, this social media channel, I control it. You know, I write down whatever I want or I take a picture of whatever I want and I post it. And there's no one editing, you know, oh, she meant this or he said that. And so when we got together with them, we said, let's work on this 64-page magazine together. You know, what do you want to talk about? And what we found with a lot of the celebrities are really the things that they were passionate about, whether it was a charity that they were super involved with, whether it was a partnership that they were really excited about, whether it was a hobby, you know, that they really wanted to talk about. For instance, um, you know, I feel like I learned so much from our different projects, but, um, you know, we would be working with a celebrity, let's call it Miranda Lambert, And she would say, you know, I love having rescue dogs. And I have started a a charity, you know, that works with rescue dogs. But when I get interviewed by Vogue or when I get interviewed by Rolling Stone, you know, rightfully so, probably nobody wants to talk about my rescue dogs because they want to talk about the music Mm -hmm. and they want to talk about who I'm dating and, you know, that sort of stuff and so the rescue dogs never get talked about or if we do get to talk about them it gets edited out it, it ends up on the cutting room floor and so when we worked with her you know not only were there pages all about you know her her rescue initiatives and the organization that she started, but there was a call to action for her fans. And, you know, she had pages in there that said, if you want to get involved, you know, here's how, and, you know, here's we're taking volunteers. And, you know, if you have any dog products that you want to bring to my shows beforehand, we'll have collection boxes outside. And so I think the celebrities really enjoyed it and enjoyed working with us because it gave them an opportunity to talk about things that they thought that their fans would really care about and gravitate onto that maybe mainstream media, you know, who's at the time going for clicks or going for purchases. You know, I always say Miranda Lambert on Vogue talking about, you know, much, is not really going to sell issues. Miranda Lambert on the cover talking about who she's dating, you know, spotted, you know, holding hands with XYZ, mm-hmm. you know, that's oh, yeah. going to sell a lot more copies. So It was, again, a a rare opportunity for those artists that we were working with to really showcase the things that they cared about and the things that were important to them.
0: So I guess the big question everybody's wondering and listening to exactly what you just explained is, how did you connect with the celebrities?
1: Yeah. So at the time, it was really interesting. I think, again, I, I hate to keep an example, but it really is all about
0: timing and entrepreneurship. I think those
1: things go hand in hand. You know, when we started a company in 2011, the music industry was really seeing that iTunes and at the time Spotify ended up coming over towards the end of 2011 from the UK into the U.S. They were really seeing that the music industry was changing. And so they were very much open to new ideas about how to get people to buy music and not steal it off Napster or stream it off Pandora at the time. And so there were industries you know, like Walmart, for example, who was a huge early supporter of us. And my co-founder had come from the music industry. She worked at a record label for about five years. Okay. And so her old colleagues who were at the record label and, um, these different connections that we had had throughout our careers were open to new ideas in a way that I think now, or even again, if we had been a year or two earlier than 2011, they might not have been as open to new ideas because they might've said, Hey, we're rocking and rolling, we're making money, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, type of thing. But in 2011, uh, the wheels were starting to get a little shaky in the music industry. So they're like, okay, hold on, You know, if things are changing, we're a little more open to new ideas than, than we have been in the past. So my co-founder was able to call on a lot of old colleagues and people that she had worked with, which is something that I always drill down into uh, young people that I either mentor or talk to, is that you never, never, never should let connections go dry or go dormant. Uh, You'd be shocked at the amount of people I talk to who have had amazing internship experiences whether it was in their sophomore year or junior year and they get to their senior year and they come to me and they say, Kim, you know, I'm graduating in May and I really want to get a job at insert X, Y, Z, you know, city or, Mm -hmm. or industry here. And I say, well, great. Didn't, you know, I kind of remember you, you know, doing an internship or it says on your resume that, you know, you worked for Johnson and Johnson two summers ago, you know, have you reached out to your old boss? you know, at the internship and they go, oh, no, you know, I haven't <laughs> talked to that person you know, since I left. And I'm going, what do you mean you haven't talked to that person since you left? And they'll say, yeah, well, the internship was over and I went back to school and basically never spoke to them again. <laughs> and, you know, that's such a, that's such a missed opportunity um, because I think when you have access to these people and listen, you know, I always I sound like such an old fart, but I always say back in the day, you know, I didn't have LinkedIn, you know, but there are so many resources now, whether it's LinkedIn or whether it's Twitter, that you can stay in touch with people from internships or from part-time jobs, because in my opinion, you never, never, never know who can help you. You know, I love the silly car game Eight Degrees of Kevin Bacon. (laughs) <laughs> um, but you, you know, the, the, the idea that you're eight degrees away from anyone. And I really feel that that's true because you never know when you really want to get a job at Johnson and Johnson, that your neighbor's husband's cousin works at Johnson and Johnson or, you know, your best friend's mom's brother you know, has a friend that works there. And so, you know, these connections are so powerful so that when you go to internships or when you're in college or if you're in the workforce already and you're switching jobs from one job to the next job, it doesn't mean, oh, let me just forget about all my old co-workers and, you know, never speak to them again. Um, it's about keeping those connections warm because you just never know. And, I know for me personally, there have been tons of examples of that in in my life. And I can't imagine, you know, what would have happened if I would have lost touch with some of these people. You know, my partner and creative director now, Abby, uh, who's such a superstar, I worked with her when I was at Brides Magazine. So, you know, it wasn't like I left Brides Magazine and said, okay, been there, done that. I'm off to the ad agency and then off to my startup. Um, you know, is keeping in touch with those people because now, you know, Abby's been with us for eight years. And so I couldn't imagine having the company without her, but, you know, eventually took those connections from my old job. So I think those connections are invaluable and, and super important and whether, and I think ironically, the pageant system is full of those. Um, that I learned very quickly is that these people that you're meeting along the way can be extraordinarily helpful, but you have to do the work in not only creating those relationships but man- maintaining them, because that's really the key to being able to activate them later and down the road.
0: Well, sure, and you're exactly right, and you've obviously done a very good job of that. Um, you and your partner start the Superfan Company in 2011. Um, one calendar year into it, you make a million dollars in revenue in the first year. And I'm pretty sure I looked up the statistics on this. I think 2% of female-owned companies ever make more than a million dollars in revenue. So that puts you in a very elite crowd right off the bat. It had to feel really good right at that point to say, okay, we've done great. But uh, I guess moving forward, now you're like, okay, uh, we're very successful. What do we do from here? What was the what was the thought process between the two of you?
1: Yeah, it was really interesting. Again, you know, going back to that planning for planning for failure and not success, it was really quite interesting because because we hadn't planned for success, we actually after the first year, almost for about a three month period, had to almost press pause on the business, quite quite frankly, because we didn't have the systems and the procedures in place to properly scale. So I I give people examples all the time. It's kind of like when you start off drinking from a water fountain Mm. and then all of a sudden the water fountain starts like squirting really hard and your face gets all wet and you're like, ah, (laughs) you know, (laughs) whoa, Um, you know, in the first year, that's really what happened. We, we ended up with water all over our face. And we're like, we need to stop for a second. And whether it's computer software or hiring the right help or getting some mentors and advisors to help us structure some stuff, you know, we really need to have everything in place because the way that we're scaling now isn't sustainable. And so I think that that's, you know, ding, 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 probably the reason people make business plans. <laughs> so <Sure. laughs> they have some sort of, you know, uh, way that they know moving forward how they're going to do that. But we did not. <laughs> so um, the success sort of caught us by surprise. And we really had to tell people, you know, we're actually not taking on new clients and we actually need to like kind of slow down a little bit so that we can get our footing in the right way and, and hire some people and get the right help so that when we start, again, moving full force, we're sort of ready for that giant stream of water and, and are prepared for it. And so I, I think that there were pros and cons for us to go in in a, in a naive sort of way. I think a a pro was that we really uh, didn't have a ton of stress on our shoulders because we were kind of like, Yeah, this will probably fail, you know, and when it fails, we'll just do something else. But a con was it was exactly that. When we started to do well, we weren't prepared for it. And it definitely sort of slowed down our business in the beginning because we, we just had to stop and and get prepared in a in a greater way before we could get the wheels up and going again.
0: So at what point did you see Shark Tank as a viable option to, to help the two of you?
1: Yeah, the Shark Tank stuff was really interesting. We were approached by them, so it was nothing, and I'm embarrassed to uh, I had approached actually you? never, yeah, so I had never seen the show before, <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Uh, I don't. I don't watch a ton of TV, so uh, I always say, like, don't Probably go me. I don't. Thing. I don't watch a ton of TV. Um, so I didn't know what the show was, uh, but my co-founder had watched it before, and she knew what it was. And so one of their producers had seen the Inc. 35 under 35 issue. It was very heavily promoted because Inc. Magazine usually does a 30 under 30 list. But that year, because it was their 35th anniversary, they did a 35 under 35 list to celebrate their big uh, milestone event. And so they had done a ton of press and a ton of uh, promotion were promoting their 35th anniversary and these 35 young entrepreneurs, and it was a really big issue. And, you know, we were on the list with some really, really high-hitting entrepreneurs. Uh, I always tell people that one of the people that was on the list with us was, you know, Travis from Uber, (laughs) arguably (laughs) a massively successful company. And so what was really quite funny at the time is when you looked at the magazine layout, They had the picture of the entrepreneurs, and then they had designed it with this sort of bubble that was next to the entrepreneurs that had their name and their ages and the location, and then it had investors. And so, for instance, Travis's bubble was really big and really flashy because he had in Uber, you know, had a ton of high-powered investors, you know, First Mark Capital and Andressi and Ashton Kutcher and, you know, all of these, his bubble was really big and, you know, very, very cool. And so the other 34 entrepreneurs, it was very similar. They had all these, you know, big bubbles. And at the time when you got to Brittany and I in our bubble, uh, it had our names and it had our ages and it had our location, New York, New York. And then under investors, it just said none because <laughs> we didn't have any investors. Um, so our bubble was very, very small <laughs> compared to other people's bubbles. Um, and so one of the producers on Shark Tank called and said, "You know, is this true? Is this a mistake? Did they just not put in your investors? You know, how is this possible that you've had this success and you've never taken on any outside financing?" And you know, my my business partner who had taken the call was like, "Yeah, no, we." it wasn't a mistake. We've never, you know, we've never had outside capital and, you know, we realize our bubble looks ridiculously small (laughs) compared to all these other people. Um, And that's when he said, you know, would you be interested in, you know, the show? And so it was obviously a a great opportunity and a very wonderful, generous offer. Uh, We still had to, you know, try out um, and send in a little, video of us talking about our business. But yeah, we ended up on season five, which aired in 2015. So even though it was four years ago, I tell people all the time, it's the gift that keeps on giving because about every, I would say six to eight weeks, the episode ends up re airing on one of those MSNBC Shark Tank marathons. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite funny because I'll get text messages or face messages or Instagram updates from people, friends, or family who are, you know, in the gym or <laughs> cooking dinner. And they're like, oh my gosh, you're, they take a picture and they're like, you're on the TV again. And it's so funny because, you know, obviously that was, that was four years ago and it's, It's still coming on. So uh, it really is the gift that keeps on giving.
0: Well, yeah, let's talk about it a little bit. So my wife and I are religious Shark Tank watchers. We love it. We have Hulu and we'll just, you know, pull up an old episode and watch the seasons. And um, about two weeks ago, uh, the two of you came on. And I'm like, where do I know that name from? And I went back and I looked at, Miss, at the Miss USA uh, selection committee and I'm like, oh, my God, she was a judge at Miss USA. I'm like, that's perfect. I'm like, I, I should have her on the podcast. But I, So I watched the episode, obviously. I wanted to learn a little bit more about how it went. Um, I know Kevin, a.k.a. Mr. Wonderful, challenged you guys on – Uh, basically the evolution of the physical products moving more to online and how you were going to handle that. And it seemed like there was a lot of pressure there, but, you know, when you guys mentioned your revenue, uh, of course, they all perked up. They're like, wait a minute, we got a a company that's doing well here. What did you feel like your chances going into Shark Tank were of securing an investment and and developing a real partnership with with any one of them?
1: Yeah, I mean, we definitely felt confident going in. I think we were a little different from some of the other companies that I've seen on the show since then, because we had already been around for about four years by that point. Mm-hmm. So we were four years in, we had already worked with Walmart and Justin Bieber and uh, Brad Paisley, these huge names. So we knew that our idea didn't totally suck <laughs> because we had had, you know, success. I think it, I definitely feel for the people that go on the show, you know, who have. I don't know, peanut butter companies. And <laughs> you know, they're selling their peanut butter at a green market, and they have no idea if they can go into Whole Foods or, you know, if they can find bigger success. You know, we were a little opposite because we had already found that success. So we, we knew that it was something that was viable. But also, you know, we were in there with the sharks for a little over an hour, you know, and that gets, Cut and edited down to, I think it was like an eight minute segment that we had. Eight wow, and a half you were minutes. in there for
0: an hour. That's a long time in front of the sharks.
1: Yeah, so I always tell people, you know, we had like such a wonderful experience and chat and conversation with all of them. You know, Kevin was delightful, you know, and people are always like, but what? You know, but I see that and I say, well, You know, everyone hates to hear this, but, like, reality shows, not always the most real. (laughs) (laughs) You know, The Bachelorette, like, spoiler alert, they don't always get married at the end. Oh, shocking, Um, I know. You know, so, you know, yeah, we were in there for an hour, but that gets edited down to eight minutes. Um, So, yeah, you're not always seeing, like, the full picture, Um, but it was a really great, you know, experience and one that I would definitely say to people, you know, you have to think long and hard with your business before you do it. Um, we were also a little bit different because at the time, most of the businesses that were going on the show were, uh, B2C businesses. So, uh, businesses, is that we're selling directly to consumers. So again, like I have a peanut butter company or Bomba Socks has been on the show, you know, things that when they watch it on the show, people can log on or go in stores and immediately, you know, buy that product. We were a little bit different because we're a B2B business. So we're really selling to, whether it's the record labels or sports teams, and they are in turn Selling it to, again, their fans or a retailer. So it's kind of going through a couple channels. You know, if you go to our website, you know, you can't type in your credit card and buy something. That's just not how
0: we're we're set up. Yeah, you're not an e-commerce business.
1: Yeah, so it's a little bit different, which I thought was kind of interesting. And and the show really, gratefully so, I mean, they really want people to be able to watch the show. And if you see something interesting, you know, you can pick up your phone and log on to... I don't know, Jenny's peanut butter dot com and buy a jar and it gets sent to your house. Um, you know, that's really how the show is set up. So we were we were sort of a different a different model for them to to try. But it was a really interesting experience and definitely one that I always caution entrepreneurs to to really think long and hard about because we had a, a really great edit and one that made us look smart <laughs> and capable. Uh, so when it re-airs every four to, you know, eight to six weeks, it doesn't bother me. Uh, but I've had other founder friends who've gone on the show and who have had, you know, quite disastrous edits uh, where, again, if they were in there for over an hour and maybe they started stuttering or cried or I don't know, something terrible, Uh, you know, and their seven minutes gets edited down to make them look kind of like bumbling idiots or something. You know, it's sort of like the bad date that never goes away. You know, then your bad date every six to eight weeks is getting re-aired and reminding you of how bad that was. So I, I always caution people, you know, You really have to be prepared that if it goes the wrong way that it's something that's going to go the wrong way sort of in perpetuity it's not something that's going to just air once and then never air ever again
0: well let's talk about the results of that so uh, on the show at least during the edit um you secure deals with four of the five sharks which rarely rarely happens and then from there you know obviously you have to get into negotiations it's kind of the after the show results uh, talk about what actually happened and, you know, what your relationship is with the Sharks today.
1: Yes, yeah, so we got offers from four of five Sharks, and then we got we accepted final offers. It was a dual deal with Robert and Lori. And so we did, you know, the deal that you see on the show where we, you know, hug Robert and Lori at the end and, you know, say we're so excited. And in the months after the show, you know, when you really get into the due diligence and the lawyers get involved and the planning gets involved, you know, we just really realized it wasn't the best fit. You know, we love Robert and Lori and, you know, they are such great partners, but we just all kind of realized like, uh, like, you know, this is super great, but maybe it just works better if we're not, you know, tied up in business with each other. So we decided not to go through with like a monetary investment with them where, you know, they give us money and they get a percentage of the company and instead, you know, have worked with them just on side projects or, you know, helps them out in any way that we can with connections that we have. So it's been a really lovely experience, but I always tell people it's kind of like when you are dating someone and you're like, maybe we shouldn't get married, (laughs) you know, like you're really great and we have this relationship, but I just don't know if you're I don't know if you're the one. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, you know, we we love them and and they're great, but we just kind of were like, I don't know if this is the best fit. It just kind of feels like we're forcing it. And so we didn't end up ultimately doing it, but they are, they are wonderful. And, you know, we had a great time on the show. The producers were very kind and easy to work with. So, all in all, it was a it was a positive
0: experience for us. So, you know, we, we've obviously talked about the beginning of the company um, evolving into Shark Tank, which, you know, made you uh, a little bit of a national celebrity in, in some respects in terms of entrepreneurs, of being able to secure a uh, four out of five shark deal. Uh, but now let's fast forward to 2019. Um, 2011 was a much different year, as you had mentioned, with social media not being as prominent and Spotify and all those different things as it is now. How has the superfan company evolved to meet the demands of the, you know, modern day superfan and be successful?
1: It's been a really exciting trajectory of growth. And I think, you know, one thing that we've had a lot of success in is, again, going to those superfans, surprising and delighting them. We do a ton of stuff on tour now with artists um, at live events, whether it's Comic-Con or the New York Mets because what we are realizing is that things are becoming increasingly more experiential. You know, it's not enough to just listen to your favorite artist on Spotify or on the radio. You want to go to their show. You want to see them. You want to upgrade to VIP meet and greet tickets where you get to meet them and take a picture with them and, you know, sit front row and uh, you know, cheer them on during the concert Uh, It's really become something that people are looking at as a holistic experience and how do we continue to elevate and make that something that is exciting and really cool. So we do a lot with tours and artists. We do a lot with music festivals. That's another big one for us. Uh, Obviously, like I mentioned, Comic-Con and the New York Mets. So anything that's sort of outside of music in the live event space. But what we just realized with, again, those super fans is it's becoming a deeper and deeper relationship that they're forming with these events and really almost becoming something that is habitual. So there are people that you'll talk to, whether it's a local music festival, and they'll say, well, I've gone every year for the last four years. You know, I know that I'm going to go to this because I'm excited and I've really formed a, an affinity to and a, and a bond with this event and I want to keep going to it and so we really look at those opportunities to say how do we make these fans fall deeper and deeper into this relationship with the entities that they love.
0: Well, look, congratulations on all your success. You're obviously doing some amazing things out there and it's really cool to watch. So, uh, I guess what I'd love for you to do if if you wouldn't mind is, you know, for all those people listening and I know you you had a chance to judge some of them this year or, or be part of the selection committee at Miss USA what advice would you have for them as, you know, future entrepreneurs getting into the professional world in today's world? And you know, What would you do if you had to kind of do it all over again back in 2011 and start over and say, how would I do things differently?
1: I think if I could get in a little time machine and, and go back to my 25 you know, year old or 22 year old self, it would be to ask for help. I think a lot of times, and especially as women, we sort of take on this attitude of you know, we can do everything, you know, I can pick up the kids and make the dinner and work full time. And, you know, we have this incessant need to be everything to everyone at all times. And I think asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's really a sign of strength. And it's a very powerful action that you can take. So if you need help finding a job, or you need help building a resume, or you need help building your personal website, instead of just struggling in silence. Ask for help and, and ask for it loudly and proudly. And I think once I started doing that, again, going back to that eight degrees of separation, it's very powerful. There are times where I will post on LinkedIn, you know, help. I'm trying to redo my website and I have absolutely no idea how to do it. And, you know, you'll be shocked by the amount of messages you'll get back of somebody you went to high school with. Their brother, who's in college, is looking for a senior project, and he'll redo the entire website for free, you know if he can use it as his senior project, you know great
0: mm-hmm. sounds <laughs> good to me, <laughs> and
1: yeah, and I think a lot of those opportunities they're out there, and those connections of so and so saying, "Oh, you know, actually, I'm happy to help you, you know, I've been looking for somebody to mentor or Work with, and so I think really asking for help is something that's so powerful, and again, activating your network and keeping up those relationships, even if you don't think, Well, right now, how is the makeup artist who worked with me at my pageant two years ago going to help me? Well, again, you never know who their brother is and their brother could be working at Spotify and that's where you want to get a job. (laughs) So I think activating your network and keeping those relationships strong, even if you can't see right now exactly how they can help you or exactly how they might affect your life, you never know down the road, how many times his introductions are
0: going to cross over. And if somebody wants to contact you, I believe, I, I don't I'm not sure if you still do it. I read it in your interview that you do something called Coffee Time with Kim on your, uh, I believe, Instagram and Twitter. Do you still do that?
1: Yeah. So on, on LinkedIn or on Instagram, I'm, I'm on there <laughs> Probably a little too much.
0: <laughs> so those
1: would, those would be the best ways to get in touch with me. And yeah, I'm always trying to put advice and things that I wish someone had told me on there so that hopefully, you know, even if I haven't met that person and they're sitting, you know, in California, that maybe they'll get some some of that advice that I wish I had had when I was them.
0: All right. Well, very cool. Well, thank you for the uh, advice and just sharing all of your stories. I mean, pretty fascinating to listen to. Um, At this point of the podcast, I'd like to do uh, get to know Kim Kaupp questions, uh, 10 of them, kind of like game show style, like family feud a little bit. Um, Totally meant to be fun and positive. So these are going to be a little off the wall. So just enjoy it and have fun with it. Are you ready?
1: Ready.
0: (laughs) All right. All right. All right. Kim, at what age do you want to retire? Number one. Never. At all?
1: No. I think oh. if I love what I do, I'll, I'll never work a day in my life.
0: You'll die at the desk. I love it. Okay. Number two, uh, would you rather have invisibility or super strength?
1: Ooh, super strength.
0: Number three, is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: no, those animal crackers are irresistible and delicious. No, okay. no one, no one can
0: all All right number four this actually is a good one for you on a scale of one to ten being part of the super fan company how good are you at keeping secrets oh
1: i'm really working on it i used to be (laughs) terrible i put myself at like a two but i'm honestly getting better and i put myself at like a six now um it was one of my new year's resolutions
0: i love it okay number five uh talking cartoon characters here ariel or jasmine
1: Oh, Ariel. She can breathe underwater. That's so cool.
0: I'd love love to see that. Uh, Number six, first celebrity crush. Justin Timberlake. (laughs) And do you work with him now?
1: We haven't. I think I'd be a little starstruck if we did. So maybe it's best that we haven't.
0: And on the side note, what's the fascination with Harrison Ford that I mentioned at the beginning?
1: Oh, I just, I loved all the Indiana Jones movies, and he's just so cool and such a great actor. And he's just, I feel like him and Robert Redford, they're just some of the last icons. Mm -hmm. You know, like the last real movie stars that we still have. I don't know, the movie stars of today's age just seem... I don't know. They're not as, yeah, they're not as, I don't know. Like those guys were like Sean Connery and stuff. Those are like real, those are the real guys.
0: Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. All right, number seven, uh, favorite part of the day, dawn or dusk?
1: Dusk.
0: You like that sunset? I do. It's beautiful. Number eight, if you could travel back in time, what period would you want to go to?
1: Oh, maybe the 60s. I feel like woodstock was really fun and i missed out on a lot of good music <laughs> and peace love and all bottoms that'd be awesome
0: all right woodstock number nine do you snore
1: i hope not no one told me i have so i'm gonna go with no
0: <laughs> all right uh and number 10 place that you most want to travel that you haven't already
1: Australia. I've never gotten a chance to go, but I would really,
0: really love to go.
1: So if anyone has any excuse to send me to Australia, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in.
0: Any place in particular?
1: Uh, the Great Barrier Reef. I feel like I looked at it in Nat Geo and you watch all these you know short films about it and it just seems so beautiful and I'd really love to go and snorkel and visit.
0: All right. That's the 10 questions. You're off the hook. Great job.
1: <laughs> that was fun. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So do you see any uh, potential future uh, continuing with the pageant industry in any way beyond the selection committee?
1: Yeah. I'd love to stay involved and, and do more stuff with them. I think it's a great organization and a great thing. I wish I, wish I had known about it and been involved when I was younger. I just think... It has a great message and opportunity to shape young women into leaders, whether it's through volunteer work or public speaking or just discipline and health. I just think it's a really great organization and system, and I know all the women that I've met that are a part of it are absolutely phenomenal and it was a, an overall an amazing experience.
0: Very cool. Well, hey, you're fantastic. Uh, love the inspiration that you are creating for future females and female entrepreneurs out there. And uh, for you and your partner, just keep it going and, and good luck to you. And uh, I certainly want to stay in touch with you as I'm sure we'll run into each other for other reasons.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. I so appreciated this. It was super
0: fun. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode and to Kim Kalp for her time. If you'd like to follow her on social media, you can do so on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. At Kim Kulp. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you wouldn't mind, please subscribe. You can do so on Spotify, iTunes, the podcast app, Google Play, and YouTube, or go to lifeafterthecrown.com. And for weekly podcast updates, just follow me on Instagram at Tim Tialdo. Until next time, remember the words of Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Don't bargain with God. Be direct. Ask for what you need. This isn't a cat and mouse hide and seek game we're in. So don't you think the God who conceived you in love will be even better? Have an awesome week, everybody.